Welcome to 2023. You're listening to Sprott Radio. I'm your host, Ed Coyne, Senior Managing Director at Sprott. With me today are two reoccurring guests, Per Jandir and John Champaglia. Gentlemen, thank you for joining me. Thanks. Great to be back, Ed. Good to be back, Ed. Per, I know you've been on the road quite a bit in, in 2022, and I, I thought this would be a great time to take a look back at what stood out for the year, what happened in the year, what was exciting, uh, you know, what really defined 2022. What a year has been, right? I would say overall increase and momentum building for nuclear energy in general. It's, I mean, it was, it was really good at the end of last year. And then you just look at this year and it has just continued to kind of build real momentum and, and start to snowball. And you're starting to see take real effect now. It started with policy decisions and sort of general guidelines, but now it's really translating into reactors being built, reactors being announced, existing reactors getting life extensions, and even reactors that are slated for decommissioning, like the ones in California and even Germany, are are coming back and getting a new life. That overall really steady good increase in in just demand and general environment around nuclear energy that has been the most positive thing of the year for me now the thing that is completely impossible to disregard is of course the geopolitical development in with the russian invasion of ukraine it really shifted focus to energy security and how that has affected countries not only in Europe but all around the world when they realize that you cannot be too dependent on another country when it comes to energy security. You really need to be in charge of your own destiny. And one reason of doing that is make sure you have a steady supply of fuel, whatever that may be, coming into your country. But another thing, again, building the case for it, nuclear energy so well, is that you don't refuel a nuclear power station very often. You only refuel it once a year, once every two years. And based on that, you can really have your fuel on site and you're not very sensitive to disruptions in supply interruptions and geopolitical instability. And that has really started to hit home with politicians and policymakers. Those things combined has really made it this year has probably been the most positive for nuclear energy in general uh, as far as far as I've been involved and it's about 20 years now. And John, how about on your side? You come at it you know, at a little different angle. What stood out for you in 2022 as it relates to uranium? Yeah, thanks, Ed. You know, I would like to echo Pear's comments. It's been an incredibly eventful year with a lot of events that nobody could have ever imagined playing out. But for me, it really boils down to two big kind of themes. One, I feel like nuclear energy has finally shaken its pariah status amongst many countries in the world. It feels like it's finally out of the penalty box. And really what's driving that is the need to decarbonize. Clearly, it's going to be a part of the solution. But I think more importantly, this whole theme of energy security, which we've just not had to deal with for so many years, is now really front and center. And, you know, just going back to nuclear energy being more included in the narrative around a sustainable energy source. You know, at COP27, we finally saw key language adjusted to include nuclear energy. And it may seem very simple, but just including words about low carbon, you know, how they define low carbon energy to make it more inclusive of nuclear energy, I think is really symbolic. The Inflation Reduction Act in the United States is just, I think, a groundbreaker in terms of finally taking nuclear energy out of the penalty box. And I think that's going to translate into many decisions being made over the coming years that are going to finally increase 
the number of operable nuclear power plants. And it's essentially plateaued for the last almost 25, 30 years now. And I do get the feeling that we are going to see finally a net addition to new power plants over the coming years as more and more countries shift back to nuclear, including life extensions, restarts, and whatnot. Uh, you know, this chart has been very flat, as I mentioned, for a long time, and I think it's finally going to break out. But just going back to energy security, which I think has been just a huge theme. I mean, Bloomberg just recently put out an article saying that Europe alone has spent an extra trillion dollars on energy since the war broke out in February of 2022. That is an astonishing amount of essentially wasted money for higher energy prices, whether that's for electricity generation, heating, industrial processes. That has a massive drag on the economy. It's obviously displaced many industries and businesses. It's obviously impacting consumers and their ability to pay for energy and impacting their discretionary spending. So I do think for 2023, the theme of energy security is going to be very dominant. It's just been kind of unleashed, this issue that we're now facing around how do you procure reliable and also affordable energy in the world right now, given where we are. So I think the world needs to reallocate the money it's spending for higher energy prices in, into longer-term sustainable forms of, of, of secure energy. Well, you know, I think you said two words that are key, reliability and affordability, right? That seems to transcend across basically all markets these days. That brings me really to the new year, 2023. What are some of the things as investors look to this space? And Per, maybe we start with you on this. As investors look to this space going forward, what are some of the key things they should be watching out for or tracking as we go into 2023? Definitely keep an eye on uranium prices. Obviously, not just the spot price, but I think the long-term price. Clearly, uh, a lot of utilities has shifted their supply away from Russian supply, not just when it comes to uranium, because Russia is not that big in supplying uranium, but the other components of the fuel cycle, such as conversion and enrichment. The utilities that were dependent on a lot of Russian supply, they have been instructed to shift away from it, partially from their own board, but even from society itself. And more and more are doing it, even while they're taking deliveries of existing contracts, they are writing no new contracts with the Russian supply uh, as, of, as of last year. So a lot of utilities are getting to that now. And, and it takes a while to do these things. So it might have been frustrating when people thought, well, well how come the, the, the price is not moving more? Well, it takes time. Like first, if you're a utility, first you need to sort out your supply of fuel fabrication. That is the bundles that you put the uranium inside. And that is very, te very technically complex, and it takes quite a while to sort out all those details. I just came back from a two-week trip to Europe, and I went around and met with quite a few of, of these utilities that have Russian-designed reactors. And uh, they have just finalized or are in the final stages of, of finalizing these contracts with Western suppliers of Russian-designed fuels. And when they have those in place, that's when they can come out and start buying uranium. And it's about to happen in the next, uh, say, three to six months. So this is not something that happens overnight. It's not a sort of a big catch-up effect where everything hits the market at once. But there's quite sizable volumes. And it is in a period when there is fairly tight supply in the next, say, between 23 to 27, 28. You're not going to see new supplies coming into that time. So supply is already tight. And there's going to be some competition for that material. And it 
in, in simple supply and demand economics, that means that the prices will have to go up. So that's something I definitely think that you should keep an eye on. You will definitely not be able to see when, these, uh, when this demand hits the market because it's just not announced. It's, it's a lot of confidentiality around it. But you will be able to see once a month, when end of month prices are published by the price supporters, that's when you can start to see the effect on this. And uh, something that's very exciting to me, another topic, is on the effect of potentially of the green taxonomy in the European Union, in the UK. Uh, South Korea have also a similar framework and the effect that can potentially have on investors. Yeah, and John, to that point, for you, 2023 um, is just around the corner, of course. And what should investors be focused on as it relates to the general markets, meaning the, the energy markets, the uranium markets? But also, what should they be looking at at Sprott? Is there anything that we're doing that could be interesting for 2023 that investors should be focused on or, or looking out for? Yeah, uh, well, I think with respect to, to uranium, I mean, it's, it's obviously been a, a bit of a roller coaster year. I mean, we started off uh, the beginning of 2022 at about $42 a pound for, for U308 and quickly popped up to $63 a pound in April on the back of speculation that there could be sanctions against Russia with respect to uranium and, and services. As that speculation dissipated for a number of reasons, prices kind of meandered between 48 and $52 a pound. It's been in a very tight trading range for a number of years. So, you know, while the price of uranium is up kind of 15% for the year, it's not too dissimilar to what's happened in a lot of commodities. If you take a look at oil, for example, I mean, we started 2022 at $80 and peaked up to about 125 and went right back to 80. So we had a round trip start to finish for 2022. I think if you, as Per mentioned, dig, dig a little deeper and, and, and look at what's going on in the other parts of the fuel chain, that's where really all the action was happening. Um, and, that, and those are obviously two parts of the fuel chain that investors are not directly exposed to. And, and that's on the conversion and enrichment side where we saw significant price increases over the course of the calendar year because of the impact of utilities trying to shift to alternative suppliers. One of the things that we're looking out for, not just in 2023, but in 2024, is one, the restart of capacity that's been shut in over the last few years. So the Converdine conversion facility is finally scheduled to, to reopen in, I believe, April of 2023. There's a conversion facility in the UK that's been closed for a very long time and the UK government recently awarded a contract, I believe, to Westinghouse to essentially explore whether that plant could be reopened. And I think these are very important data points because when governments start turning over all kinds of rocks like that, plants that haven't been open for many years, the UK government making its first financial investment in a new power plant built in 30 years, those are really powerful signals in terms of the oil tanker kind of turning around. It's moving slowly, but it's moving. But again, you know, we've offshored a certain part of our supply chain to Russia. And, and the big challenge for the industry for the next, you know, two to five years is going to be to essentially reshore some of that capacity. So we're not beholden to aggressive nations. And John, let, let's stay on that theme for a second. You know, you talk about the, the great restart, or I like to think of it as nuclear power 2.0. You know, as the world sort of talks about this in a much more broad sweeping way. From an investor standpoint, we've talked about physical, we've talked about the miners. How should investors start thinking about either A, allocating to this space or B, participating in general in this space? 
Should investors be thinking about buying individual stocks, buying a basket of stocks, participating in the physical market? How can one participate in this space going forward to try to take advantage of some of these opportunities both you and Pear have talked about? Yeah, well, you know, I mean, the market is incredibly small in terms of a total market capitalization. So there really are a couple of options. One, try to get exposure to the physical commodity market through different vehicles, including our own, or try to gain exposure to the to the improving fundamentals that are playing out in the mining sector. And I think the mining stocks, while they've underperformed this year relative to the price of the commodity, they've done better relative to, to say, other sectors of the equity markets. What we always try to remind investors is that whether it's a mining stock or an oil and gas stock or whatever, at the end of the day, they're still stocks and they tend to have, you know, moderate levels of correlation to general equity markets. So we've definitely seen selling pressure over the past few months uh, on the stocks. That's clearly frustrated a lot of investors because they see the price of uranium moving up. They see all this, all these great announcements and, and the fundamentals look incredibly constructive, yet the stocks have underperformed. So in 2023, I think, you know, for Cameco, MacArthur River, we're going to see finally a big jump in production after a slow start in 2022. But we're seeing a bunch of smaller mines finally winning contracts for more mid and long term deliveries from utilities. But those contracts being awarded are really going to be able to enable the, the mining company to restart their operations. The other interesting thing that we've been looking at just this past week is some of the uh, Department of Energy contracts that were awarded to some of the the different suppliers for U.S. origin uranium. And one of the things that Per and I have been watching for really closely is any visibility as to what kind of prices the U.S. government's paying for their first loading of uranium for their strategic stockpile. I found it really interesting that some of the prices that the U.S. government paid for U-308 ranged as high as $70.50 a pound, $64.47 a pound. Other contracts did not have that granularity of terms, but what's important to note here is if the current spot price is at $48 a pound, the U.S. government was willing to pay well in excess of that for U.S. origin material. I think it is a signal that the spot uranium price today is somewhat depressed, because we just have had a very challenging macro background. It, it seems to me that this has certainly moved from being a speculative trade to a long-term investment. And I think the short-term frustration that maybe some investors feel when they can sort of widen their lens, so to speak, and think about this as a decade-plus potential investment for their portfolios, the price disruption actually becomes more of an opportunity. You know, Per, let's shift gears for a second and talk a little bit about what could go bump in the night? What, what, what could effectively derail the positive outlook we're seeing over the next, say, three to five years from the restart that John talked about to the prices increases and, and new buyers coming into the market that you talked about? What do you see out there that could potentially derail this, if anything at all? Uh, one thing that potentially will keep me up at night until it is up and running is the conversion plant that John talked about. At uh, the U.S. one at Con- that Converdine operates, it's slated to come back online early, early April, potentially even early as uh, in uh, in March. If something does go wrong there, obviously it's going to have conversion prices shoot through the roof. 
But uh, but conversion is very important for the nuclear fuel chain in the sense that it's the it's the connector between uranium and enriched uranium product or the, uh, the enrichment process. So if you don't have enough conversion capacity, it doesn't matter how much uranium you have, you're still not going to be able to make the fuel. And from a uranium investor, it's also important that that flow happens because, you know, as we've been talking throughout the year of this switch from underfeeding to overfeeding, when there's a shortage of enrichment capacity, especially if start countries starting to move away from Russian supply, and then we need to create more Western supply. That's not going to be able to come online in new facilities until 27, 28 maybe. But in the meantime, we can create more capacity by switching from underfeeding to overfeeding. And in order to do that, you're going to consume more uranium. So you need to have your conversion capacity available to enable this flow of uranium to go into enrichment. So basically what it means is that you can create more enrichment capacity by consuming more uranium. So having operating conversion facilities will actually increase uranium demand. So from, as from a uranium investor's perspective, you want to have every conversion capacity fully functional possible. And it's also interesting to, that John alluded to this Westinghouse facility, Springfields in the UK, and now Cameco has invested in Westinghouse. And uh, it's, an, it's an old facility that operated about 10, 15 years ago. There is one component missing in it, and it's basically uh, the, uh, the uranium re um, refinery, if you will, where you do U308 into U03, kind of an interim step. Fortunately, Cameco has that facility in Blind River in Canada. That's why Cameco operated this facility about 15 years ago for a while because they have the capacity to do it. And now, as they are owners of Westinghouse, they clearly have that capacity again. So I think we're looking at another 5,000 tons of conversion coming into the market as soon as that uh, facility is operational. It's a very good thing for the nuclear industry, in my view. It, it adds stability to it, and in the long run, it's actually going to create more uranium demand. So it's uh, that's a very good thing. Another... That I wouldn't say necessarily call it a negative thing, but it's, a, it's an uncertainty, is there is a recent management uh, change at Kazatomprom, where Askar Baturbayev, the former chief commercial officer, has announced that he's leaving the company in January next year. And Oscar has been very helpful in that, that he has a very Western mindset. The new CEO I'm not that familiar with, but from what I'm hearing, he's also a, a very capable individual. So it's just, uh, it's just something to keep an eye on, what's, uh, what's coming out of Cassano Problem. And, and hopefully it's not going to be a shift in, uh, in their attitude or in their, in their behavior. But, uh, but that's something that we're just going to have to keep an eye on for the next month or two. John, is there anything on your end that you see as potential speed bumps? that people should be thinking about or investors should be thinking about? Yeah, it's not so much investors today, but one thing that's starting, like one of the one of the fallouts from over-relying on Russia is uh, for small modular reactors, which, you know, there's just growing support for them around the world. You know, the, the fuel that is specifically required, which they call HALU, H-A-L-E-U, which is this high assay, low enriched uranium, you know, the world was essentially relying 100% on Russia to develop that fuel. And now with the world pivoting away, the world needs to come up with its own, the Western world, that is, needs, needs to come up with a homegrown solution. You know, it was just announced a couple of days ago that one of the small modular reactors that's kind of leading the pack in, in terms of its pilot project 
could be delayed by two years now because uh, uncertainty related to the fuel. Uh, and that's a power plant backed by Bill Gates at uh, Terra Power in Wyoming. So that, that's unfortunate. That in the short term is clearly going to be a bit of a constraint on deployment of small modular reactors. But on the flip side, we're very positive about the development and commercialization of small modular reactors. Where I live in the province of Ontario in Canada, uh, they've recently broken ground at our Darlington nuclear power plant to build Canada's first SMR there. So, you know, it's happening. Shovels are starting to go in the ground. We think it's going to be a key driver over the next 10 plus years for uranium. And it really is not incorporated into any analyst models that I've ever come across. That is a wild card in terms of how much incremental demand we may see from the deployment of SMRs over the next 10 plus years. Well, and I think that goes back to a point you made earlier about reliability and affordability, right? So I think over the next couple of years or even the next decade, as these things continue to expand and as you know more people enter into the market, to me, it looks like this is just a tremendous opportunity to potentially add to one's portfolio as, as they think about kind of the future, both from an energy standpoint, but also from an investment standpoint. So gentlemen, it's always, it's always a treat to have you both on. But before we, we sign it off, if, if there's any last points you'd like to make, I'll, I'll turn it back to each of you. And, and from there, we'll, we'll say goodbye. Yeah, I, w- I would say uh, that I expect it to be a very interesting uh, winter in Europe. Just to give you some perspective on UK wholesale electricity prices. So back in mid-December, prices hit 2,585 sterling per megawatt hours. That's about 45 times the 2011 to 2020 average price. So this has had a profound impact, obviously, on consumers and businesses. And obviously, uh, any industry that is highly energy intensive these are taking, you know, these kinds of businesses are obviously taking the brunt of this, of this price shock. And, and that's having a meaningful impact, obviously, uh, on economies, budgets, governments are trying to, to um, mitigate some of these impacts for, for businesses and, and consumers, obviously, by implementing price caps on annual electricity bills and, and providing subsidies and whatnot. But the reality is that that's not sustainable over a long term, you need to find permanent solutions to deal with with these kinds of issues. And I, I think that's where governments are finally acknowledging that nuclear can be part of the long-term solution. Thank you, John. And, and Per, how about on your end? Yeah, very much the same direction as John was going. Just coming back from Europe now, it, there was not a single day that I did not overhear a conversation in an airplane, in a bar, on the news, it, just overhearing it on the street where people are discussing electricity prices in general and even nuclear energy in particular. And it's not like I'm hanging out with a bunch of nuclear nerds. I know a fair few of them, but uh, but these are just random people in bars. So they have nothing to do with it. But just anyone in Europe is talking about these things right now. And the pressure is mounting on politicians to do something. And it's starting to show in policies. And it's a very positive thing for the nuclear industry. And it's basically like... Finally, now it's our time and they are ready to deliver. I think 2023 is going to be, it's going to be a very exciting year. Well, wonderful. And, and forgive me for having the picture painted in my head of you sitting around with a bunch of men and women in lab coats with goggles on having cocktails. But uh, that was the image that sort of popped into my mind. So with that, I think we'll say, we'll say goodbye and, and close out 2022. 
And again, for all of our listeners, uh, you're listening to Sprott Radio. Thank you. This podcast is provided for information purposes only from sources believed to be reliable. However, Sprott does not warrant its completeness or accuracy. Any opinions and estimates constitute our judgment as of the date of this material and are subject to change without notice. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This communication is not intended as an offer or solicitation for the purchase or sale of any financial instrument. Any opinions and recommendations herein do not take into account individual client circumstances, objectives, or needs, and are not intended as recommendations of particular securities, financial instruments, or strategies. You must make your own independent decisions regarding any securities, financial instruments, or strategies mentioned or related to the information herein. This communication may not be redistributed or retransmitted in whole or in part, or in any form or manner without the express written consent of Sprott. Any unauthorized use or disclosure is prohibited. Receipt and review of this information constitutes your agreement not to redistribute or retransmit the contents and information contained in this communication without first obtaining express permission from an authorized officer of Sprott.